Christianity is not a religion that is based on a book. It is not a religion that is based on a particular set of moral or ethical principles. It is not a religion that is based upon a particular set of liturgical formularies or, for that matter, a, a huge list of doctrinal beliefs. Christianity is based on and in a person, Jesus Christ. And I mention this to you because today is the last Sunday of the Green Sundays, the last Sunday of the Christian year, and it is celebrated here as Christ the King. Christ the King is not an ancient observance in the Christian church. Its origins are uh, with Pope Pius XI in 1922. He promulgated the Feast of Christ the King. It used to be celebrated on the last Sunday of October. And in 1970, Pope Paul VI moved it to the last Sunday of the year. In 1922, Mussolini had come to power in Italy. And the Pope believed it was a good idea to uh, have some sort of an acknowledgement in the liturgy and in the church's proclamation about uh, where our loyalty should be as Christian people. And this didn't mean just merely some sort of affirmation of our religious sentiments. It meant an affirmation of how we understood what the meaning of the kingdom of Christ was for Christian people and their role in it. How were they to live cooperating with the divine principle that had begun in them at their baptism? And how were they to see that issues of justice and equity and an understanding of kingdom that was different from the, what the world understood kingdom to be, and particularly in this particular case, Mussolini, who had very uh, firm views about how he thought things ought to, ought to run, you know? So Christ the King is an important feast. The affirmation that the reign of Christ is a place where the default position is the belief in God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness. And that the great release that that produces in people who accept and believe that is such that they can make the world a different place. So it isn't just an affirmation of some kind of hierarchical understanding of the way the church works or a hierarchical understanding of the way in which we understand God. I should say, which seems to contradict this, we do live in an era where hierarchy is under suspicion at every place. And maybe that's not the best idea in the world, but that's the subject of another time. But here we're to affirm the fact that we believe in God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness. Some people, some Christians don't have any difficulty with this, even though the ones who would step away from any kind of liturgical observance or anything like Christ the King... But their Christian loyalties um, often sound very much like uh, a kind of overweening nationalism. You know, my country right or wrong. You know, that's not what we're talking about here. 
we're talking about the slow and steady understanding of what we believe to be authoritative in our lives and by virtue of discovering what it means to be the best human being we can be by being influenced by the worship that we participate in over time and even when we don't think it has had much influence on us when we look back we begin to say you know what being here all the time has helped me I see things a different way than I did before I'm more able to cope I'm less anxious and I feel stronger internally more able to meet the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of me on a daily basis so one of the ways that we can appropriate and make part of our own personal history what it means when we proclaim Christ the King is to understand it in terms of something that has now become a centerpiece of our self-understanding as Episcopalians and that is what we call the baptismal covenant there is by the way floating around now something else in the Anglican communion called the Anglican covenant and this is a very important thing uh, I intend probably in December to have dessert with the rector to talk a little bit about the whole business of the Anglican Covenant. Um, the Episcopal Church uh, has said they wish to demur from uh, signing the Anglican Covenant. And I think that they're right. This is a, a teaching moment so that you know this. All the provinces of the Anglican Communion, there are about 35 of them. The Anglican Church is one of the three largest churches in the world doesn't seem that way in this country but we're the Eastern Orthodox Church the Roman Catholic Church and, and the Anglican Church are the three largest churches throughout the world most Anglicans are in Africa now but they are a collection of autonomous provinces that are held together as we have said before sometimes with our tongue in our cheek by mutual affection and that's no light thing but at the same time we have also believed uh, in something that we have called when official uh, think tank people in the Anglicanism get together you know the problem with the think tank though is that it often doesn't have a drain <laughs> so all of us should be wary in absolute terms of think tanks you know but when they get together to reflect on this they have described our relationship as one where we have in each of the provinces something we call subsidiarity and that means that disciplinary questions about the faith and belief of the church the conduct of Christian people and how we understand the standards that we all should hew to uh, are determined within those individual provinces in an autonomous fashion and that has been something that we have understood for a long long time and now there is a desire oddly enough flowing from some of the more evangelical provinces of the Anglican communion that we should create within our communion uh, an almost papal form of interconnectedness which is simpler, simply contrary to the way we have understood ourselves for over 450 years 
So this has provided us with some opportunity for conversation and how we should understand this. And maybe as far as Episcopalians are concerned, American Episcopalians, we need to focus on another covenant. And that's the baptismal covenant. We have in our liturgy in the Episcopal Church, the church in Canada, the church in New Zealand, the church in Australia, uh, some of the other provinces in the Anglican Communion, not too many more, have in their liturgy a, now a baptismal covenant at the baptismal rite when someone is baptized. Uh, even in the Church of England now, in the new book, Common Worship, uh, there is a baptismal covenant that can be used in the liturgy. Many of the other provinces do not have a baptismal covenant, are proud of the fact that they do not, and they issue baptismal covenants uh, as a matter of principle. I didn't say chew. I said issue. I still remember as a little boy a cartoon in the Saturday Evening Post where three people are sitting, a guy and two women in the, in the living room, and one of the women turns to the other one and says, No, Agnes, he didn't say he chewed all forms of tobacco. He said he issued all forms of tobacco. So that's what I mean by that. Well, who, why am I going into all that? Because you know what? It has a fundamental thing to do with this idea of the reign of Christ, the kingdom of Christ, God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness, and how we understand cooperating with the divine principle in each one of us, you know? If you come from a theological perspective that believes in the absolute sovereignty of God, I don't think that's a particularly bad thing. But there is, in fact, a view of the sovereignty of God which is such that the idea of a covenant is just ridiculous. God is God. God can do whatever God wants. God is omniscient, omnipotent, and eternal. And therefore, what is it that human beings think they can do making any kind of covenant with God? We are God's creatures. It is utterly ridiculous to suggest this. What we need to do is to get in line. So the baptismal liturgy and the older versions of the Book of Common Prayer and in other places, uh, many of the African provinces still use the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, which is the official prayer book still in the Church of England. Uh, the baptismal liturgy is cosmic spot remover. That's how we understand it, right? It's like, I don't get this much anymore. I don't know whether to be upset or happy. But when I was a young priest, I would actually have people call me up and say, you know, we're not, I'd like to get my daughter baptized. Uh, my husband and I are flying to New York for Christmas on the airplane and my daughter hasn't been baptized and I'm just worried that if the plane goes down she'll go into limbo. Right? Well, if you believe that baptism is cosmic spot remover uh, you might think that needs to be done. We don't believe in a God who casts people into limbo or, for that matter, capriciously casts anybody into anything. 
but there are a lot of people who do. The baptismal covenant has something to do with understanding the reign of Christ as a reciprocal arrangement whereby we as mature people come to understand God's will and purpose for us and that for some reason we are part of God's plan in big and small ways for the future. So that means that you count and you are necessary for God's plan, for the cosmos. And your response to that means that you have undertaken to hold up the end of your bargain. And the covenant is your promise to do that. And you know, it really doesn't compromise the sovereignty of God. It affirms uh, the role of us in the divine economy. It's a great mystery. Why does God need anybody? You know? God is God. And the old, the old medieval theologians, you know, God is thought thinking itself. Why does he need anything else? But for some, mis- for some reason, God needs to extend. And by virtue, his creatures need to extend and come to realize that as they live. All this is implied in the reading today from Paul's letter to the Colossians. And he speaks about the person of Jesus Christ, and embedded in this reading is an early primitive liturgical hymn that is both Christological, which is the fancy term for saying referring to Jesus Christ, and baptismal. And so he is speaking there about the nature of Jesus Christ, fully human and fully divine, And he affirms in there that Jesus embodies all of the aspects of the wisdom of God in its fullness. So when Paul wrote that and the people who read it heard it, they said he is affirming a view that the Greeks have about how Jesus embodies the divine wisdom. So throughout the ancient Near East... The Jews who were influenced by Hellenism or the Greek thought world began to see that in him, in his words and in his works, he embodied what the Jewish teachers like Philo of Alexandria and other people like that said about the heavenly wisdom. And now it's incarnate in a human being. And what they discovered, and Paul discovered, was that he doesn't just watching some tableau of Jesus saying, doing, saying, doing. Jesus gave each one of us tools that we can use. And so this is another version of saying what I say all the time, that Jesus constitutes for us the template that we lay over our own spiritual life, over our own spiritual maturity. And that spiritual maturity means human maturity. Thomas Merton, the spiritual life is the whole of life. Body, soul, mind, spirit given to God in love. The spiritual life is life. So the baptismal covenant has something to do with not merely observing your religious commitments... It has something to do with life in all of its fullness and in all of its complexity. 
So something to do, something about all of the quotidian aspects of living, the daily life stuff, has something to do with spiritual maturity. You know, who would have thought? So Paul in Colossians today is affirming this. I wasn't, you know, I have to say something, I think, about the reading from Luke's gospel. It's a big downer, isn't it? I mean, here we are, seems the wrong time of year, Advent is just about to begin, and we got Jesus on the cross with the two thieves and a whole bunch of ridicule and everything else. You know, it's kind of negative, but it's there for a reason, because for Luke and for for the eyewitnesses, for the oral tradition that gave us the story originally, we have a Jesus who has been rejected, ridiculed, and triumphs in this reading. And somehow the triumph has something to do about the testimony of the continuity of the kingdom of God. The first followers of Jesus believed that the relationship that they had with the Savior, those eyewitnesses, was going to last forever. That it would transcend physical death. And they came to call that relationship eternal life. And I expect that that's what created within the tradition of the church the whole idea of the communion of saints because you and I also experience relationally this with those near to us who have died and gone to God. We, we can understand this because we have experienced that in some form, you know, and we yearn for it to be so. I think the most, the thing that used to happen all the time when I taught religion at St. Michael's School in Tucson, Arizona. We had a school there. And uh, one of the great questions the kids would always ask was, when I die and go to God, will I get to see my dog? Well, my great dog that I had as a kid who died or my dog that I have now, will I get to see my dog when I go to heaven? Well, you know what the old answer was? No! You're not going to see your dog. Why not? Because a dog doesn't have a soul. What's the soul? Well, in the old way we used to talk, it's the reason and the will. Not still a bad way of speaking about it. Do you believe your dog doesn't have a reason and a will? Please. We just had a show on PBS that opened by saying civilization as we know it could not have evolved and developed without dogs. Without the relationship that we have with our dogs and then proceeded to describe how that relationship has played itself out over time. You know? 
Now, some of you may not be dog lovers, so you can say it about your cat or your hamster. I like cats. I like dogs. But a cat is not a dog. <laughs> See? So some people may think just the opposite. Well, something needs to occur, doesn't it, about the expanding of our view about the nature of the soul, of the creation? Something needs to expand about what it means when we say we believe in eternal life. What is the blessing that we have received from the dogs in our life, those of us who've had them? And is it reasonable to assume that this merely isn't a sentimental idea, but it may be at the heart of our understanding of God's way with the creation? So the Feast of Christ the King may have something to do with the affirmation of the fullness. You know, the saving power of God in Christ is about God's healing The word in the Hebrew Bible used most often translated as to save means to heal also. And the same is true for the Greek word. To save also means to heal. And so that means somehow that God is laboring in the creation that he made and called good to bring it all to wholeness and completion. And that you and I now must participate and be part of that healing process. That is our role in cooperating with the divine initiative. So this week, give thanks for the reign of Christ. Give thanks for your role in it. See if you have the opportunity to express God's healing, reconciling power and to be an instrument of his transformation in the world. Amen.